an elephant, a mouse, and two ants. That's how an Uruguayan diplomat has described Mercosul, the common market of the South. The comparison may seem bizarre, but it illustrates how unbalanced this free trade block is. Created in 1991, Mercosul is formed by Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. Venezuela has been suspended, and Bolivia will soon join the bloc. What those economies have in common? Well, not much. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, and this is Explaining Brazil. Today our topic is Mercosul and Brazil's positions in world trade. I'm joined by Mario Braga, a Brazilian journalist who has covered economics for the best part of his career and who is now pursuing his master's degree at Aarhus University in Denmark. Thanks for being with us, Mario. Uh, have I pronounced it correctly? It's Aarhus University? Yeah, thanks for having me, Gustavo. You're pretty, pretty well. It's Aarhus University. It took me a while to get to the good pronunciation. Well, not that far. <laughs> um, Mario, you wrote a long, very detailed piece for us at the Brazilian Report about Mercosul and its shortcomings. Um, I want to ask you right off the gate, what's the state of this trade union 27 years after its creation? Well, Gustavo, unfortunately, we cannot say it's a very good one. Uh, we have 27 years of history And despite that, uh, Mercosur has closed only three free trade agreements and with not very significant uh, trade partners. They are only Egypt, Israel, and the Palestinian National Authority. So uh, these are partners that don't have much expression in the world trade. This is a way to see how successful or not this block has been. And the other way, for example, would be In looking inside and seeing how much of the foreign trade of these country members are destined to these uh, their partners in the bloc. So, for example, how much of Brazil's exports go to Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, for example. And in that sense, Mercosur is not doing much better because, for example, we can check uh, the percentage of the intra-trade bloc, and it has had, of course, a peak back in 1998. It was in 23%, so that was uh, quite a lot, and it was going up. The trend was uh, positive. And, and why is that? What, what was happening in the late 90s to, to explain that, and why it, didn't, it wasn't sustained? Well, Gustavo, I've talked to different economists, and they have different explanations. One of them has to do, for example, with the fact that the block was uh, coming together uh, along the 90s, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about that. So uh, the countries were actually coming together and trying to uh, find how their economies would complement each other. And this led to this increase. And, of course, uh, the economy was getting better. Brazil had just implemented its reforms, the Real after 94. So the country was getting back on track after uh, many years of hyperinflation, for example. And, uh, then, and then it came the Russian and the Asian crisis, right? <laughs> Exactly. By the end of the 90s, we had a crisis on emerging markets, and it hit, for example, Brazil and also Argentina, because that's when Argentina had its financial default, uh, and it never recovered after that. And when you look, for example, at the graph of the 
intra-trade trade exports. It's very clear. Mercosur's partners, they were coming together. They were integrating the economy in the late 90s. And when the year 2000 began, it has a sharp decrease until 2001, and they never recovered. Uh, for example, for now, the intra-trade export represents only 13% uh, for the past few years, and that only places Mercosur in the 10th position regarding uh, these very uh, representative trade blocks worldwide. So although we have a big size of economies combined, when we take into account especially, of course, Brazil and Argentina, they are not very well integrated. So this is another sign that the bloc hasn't succeeded as it could. So we had potential and we haven't fulfilled it. And uh, why is it so difficult to integrate these countries? Uh, are the f these four members more uh, different than, for instance, European economies among themselves? Because the EU, they have economies like France and uh, Germany and Spain, Greece. These are not exactly like similar economies. What's the problem here? Yes, what I when I talk to the specialists, what they say is that there is a difference in the level of development of these economies. Because, of course, when we look uh, to Mercosur, we have Brazil, which is like uh, the, one of the top 10 world economies. And then you have, for example, Paraguay, which has a GDP of only 74 times uh, smaller than Brazil's. So it's a huge difference. And other than that, other than the size, the level of development of these economies is also very different. So, for example, Brazil, you have, uh, as Argentina, are also two big players when it comes to exportings of agribusiness. For example, you have soybeans and wheat and meat. So they're big players. But especially Brazil also has uh, industry. So we have, for example, uh, the car industry that exports mostly to Argentina and we compete with Mexico, but we also have other kinds of industries develop. And when you look to the smaller members of Mercosur, that's not true. Paraguay and Uruguay have very weak industries. And when they analyze the European Union, although the countries also have some differences when it comes to the size and the level of the development of the economies, the difference is by far not as big as we have here. So that's why for them, uh, it was easier to shorten these distances and why when it comes to Mercosur, it's much more difficult because the distances are larger. And then it comes to seeing another factor that is how the leadership in these blocks acted differently as well. What do you mean? Well, uh, the major example, for example, is having, we have Brazil, which accounts for 75% of the GDP of the bloc in Mercosur. So it's considered a natural leader because it's the bigger country. It's the one that has uh, more influence, for example. And when you look to the European Union, you would have in a similar position Germany, for example. Uh, and what Germany did, and not only Germany, but the more developed economies in the European Union, was that they came together and they identified the fact that there are these asymmetries as one of the big challenges for the bloc, for this integration process. So they came up with a fund to put money together so this money would be invested 
in building, for example, infrastructure or in giving kind of incentives for these less developed economies of the block mm -hmm. to try to bring them to the same level. So just so you get a sense, uh, the budget of these funds for the 2014-2020 period is of 358 billion euros. We're talking of this budget for six years. It's much more than one trillion reais. Just, uh... Oh, yeah, just make the sense. Exactly. More than one trillion reais. And when you look of the what would be the parallel in Mercosur, which is saying the Structure Convergence Fund, it had only $1 billion for its first tenure. That was from 2007 to 2015. So it's like almost twice as long and the budget of $1 billion against 358 billion euros. So that's how uh, the integration process in the European Union has been made possible because they invested in making these smaller economies more competitive in building, for example, infrastructure in the southern European countries such as Spain or Portugal. And the explanation, for example, for why doesn't make sense for Germany to put money into Spain or Portugal or in the same sense, why would it make sense for Brazil to invest in infrastructure in Paraguay, for example? Well, the answer is that if you build infrastructure in these countries, you make these markets, these consumer markets, more accessible for your products. So, for example, for Germany car exporters, for example, it will be easier for them to reach a determined region in northern Spain or it will make it cheaper for their products to get there because the roads are better, it will be faster. So they, their products become more competitive, even with the local products. So that's the logic, and that's what happened in the European Union. But when we look at Mercosur, Brazil, when we look even among our states, Brazil hasn't had the money to invest and even these imbalances within the country border, borders. So when you look at the regional picture. Of course, Brazil hasn't had what it takes to play this leadership role the bloc needed for, for it to succeed. Do you think that the fact that we speak Portuguese and not Spanish, that we don't share uh, a lot of the cultural references that our neighbors do, does that come into the equation? Uh, I believe that that's one of the key factors when we assess the lack of integration of Brazil in Latin America, because you have the question of the Latin identity. Uh, there are surveys showing that Brazilians don't identify themselves as Latins, and of course the, the language is a, is a barrier. And I believe that, for example, you have this kind of rivalry uh, between Brazil and Argentina. It goes... Uh, not only in the soccer, right, on soccer games and matches, but it goes beyond that. So I guess that this plays a role, and it comes even from our historical process of, uh, for example, after independence, Brazil uh, kept being a monarchy, and the other countries were uh, already republics. And then while Brazil was still looking to Europe, the other countries were building their own identities as Latin Americans. So I guess, yes, all of this has... Uh, kind of a factor that leads to where we are now. And uh, some of the economists I've spoken with, they also mention 
that we have some pretty powerful neighbors up north that uh, would not uh, be keen on seeing Mercosur thriving. Uh, notably, the U.S., uh, which wants Brazil and Argentina especially to join the FTAA, the um, Free Trade Area of the Americas, which uh, Chile also uh, prefers the FTAA to Mercosur. Uh, do you do you agree with that? Well, the fact is that uh, when you have this integration process, such as Mercosur, and Brazil, which is its leader, cannot play this role efficiently, and then there is a vacuum. There's when it comes to play other actors that can exercise influence. And I guess, of course, you have either the U.S., which is close to the region, but it's a global hegemon, and you have, of course, now China growing its influence abroad and then coming to Latin America full force to uh, develop partnerships. When you have in the countries... Uh, businessmen, entrepreneur, and they are looking for, for example, resources to develop their businesses, or they need uh, partners to have the technology to come and make them more productive. When within the block you don't find a solution, you're not going to be stuck. You try to find alternative solutions. And that's where I think that these other key players and more powerful and developed economies come into play and there is no other way. Brazil really can't do anything to prevent them from uh, building partnerships and becoming more influent in the region. And yes, I guess that it makes sense because, for example, there is also a strong criticism regarding Mercosur is that for the past 10 years or so, it has looked more for the political side. Some even claim it has become a ideological club. While other blocs, for example, you have the Pacific Alliance, uh, which involves, for example, Chile and Colombia, and they are looking for commercial partnerships, and they developed these while Mercosur was stuck. And so, uh, in terms of ideological club, just for listeners who are not uh, familiar with, what do you mean by that in terms of... Uh, uh, what, what, uh, how was Mercosur used ideologically? Yes, uh, the claims of the critics is that, for example, we had this wave of left-wing governments in Latin America, especially in the 2000s, right? We had Lula in Brazil and in Argentina, the Kirchners. And, of course, we have the Bolivarian countries such as uh, Venezuela with Hugo Chavez and now Nicolás Maduro. And then in Bolivia, you have Evo Morales. Uh, so you had this kind of left-wing leaning in Latin America and South America especially. Yeah, Pepe and Mujica there, in Uruguay. Yes, of course, that's true. And you had uh, them coming together trying to build this, uh, even work this, what we were talking earlier of Latin identity. You're trying to uh, work as a group. And then they even founded the UNASUR, which is uh, a political forum, differently from Mercosur, which was supposed to be an economical form. But what a lot of economists in Brazil especially say is that uh, this way of facing the international relations in the region contaminated the bloc. And then instead of focusing on building new commercial partnerships, closing new free trade agreements, what they did was trying to organize this political alliance and use Mercosur uh, to do so. So, for example, when Venezuela... Uh, 
was accepted into the block. This was seen as a major sign that the block was used for political purposes. And they claim that that's why the block stuck, has been stuck, especially for the past 15 years or so, because that's when the left wing came to power in Latin America. But we can also try to think of this as a kind of positive tone of a hope looking forward, because what they say is that now that uh, through elections and different processes, uh, these left-wing leaders are getting out of power. So you had the election of Mauricio Macri in Argentina, and then you had, for example, the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. Uh, and now Pepe Mojica is no longer uh, as president of Uruguay. What you have is now presidents that are trying to, uh, with this liberal view of the economy, to bring Mercosur back to its origins and trying to give more uh, strength to its purposes. So there's a lot of people, like a lot of economists that I've talked to, they are hopeful that now the bloc will develop more as it could have developed as in the past few years. Yeah, and uh, in the past few years, there were, there was also the problem of uh, protectionism within Mercosur. Uh, for instance, uh, in numerous occasions uh, during Cristina Kirchner's government, Argentina unilaterally raised tariffs against uh, Brazilian, Brazilian house appliances, Brazilian cars, um, that doesn't sound very free trade like, and uh, but there are some efforts right now, right, to to put the ship back uh, uh, on the, the the right way. Uh, for instance, the Mercosur has signed recently a, a trade agreement with Canada. Uh, it has not yet uh, been implemented. There are still a few years of negotiations, but the, the deal was struck. There is the perspective of finally, after 20 years of negotiations, signing a free trade agreement with the European Union. What else can we point out as efforts to make Mercosur more performing? Well, what you pointed is very much what defines the paradox of Mercosur, right? Because we are thinking of a bloc that needs to expand globally, look for new partners, but within its members, and by now we are only four, we don't have much agreement. So uh, researcher Leah Valls from the Brazilian Institute of Economics, she uh, classifies this as a protectionism of reciprocity. So if Christina Kirchner does that, and then out of nowhere, Brasilia just decides, well, you're going to do the same to Argentinian products. And that doesn't help much. And that also makes other countries look uh, to Mercosur with some sort of skepticism because they are not sure what would the regulations be about, how they can change out of the blue. And this is a problem. But what some economists point as a solution is that uh, becoming partners with these uh, major blocks, for example, such as the European Union, these would make Mercosur become, we could say, more serious. Or it will have to build these legislative and this procedural framework and work properly, kind of play by the rules, which sometimes it hasn't done. So, of course, you mentioned Canada. There's also Japan, and the Brazilian report ran a story on that, on how Japan is interested in becoming a partner of Mercosur. So there are some possibilities. And, of course, when you look 
for the Brazilian consumer market. We are 200 million people. And as soon as the recession is uh, a part of the past and these consumers have power purchase and can consume more, it makes sense for other countries to be here and to have access to this market. So, of course, there is potential for Mercosur to develop. And just like as a reminder, a friendly reminder, uh, researcher Peggy Bessac from uh, Fundação Armando Álvares Penteado, FAP, what she says is that, of course, we haven't developed much. Mercosur is kind of stuck, but we are only 27 years old. And when you look to the EU, they are twice as old. And she claims that 27 years old is not much more than one generation. So uh, we still need some time to become a more solid uh, integrated region. So it's not that because the bloc has underperformed so far that it has no future. I guess that it's kind of uh, the point is what the member states need to do for it to develop uh, more intensely from now forward. It's like, don't ask what your block can do for you, but what you can do for your trade block. <laughs> yeah, it would be something like those lines. <laughs> uh, in your story about Mercosur, uh, you mentioned a meeting in Davos, uh, in the World Economic Forum in 1998, when then Argentinian President Carlos Menem uh, introduced an ambitious idea, a common currency for Mercosur. Uh, you mentioned, yes, This block is only 27 years old. It has a lot to evolve. But do you see that as a realistic um, th expectation to have a common currency? Because we, we look to Argentina right now, and uh, they are having a new currency crisis in 20 years, the second one in 20 years. Uh, they had to hike interest rates to 40% to try to hold the, the the value of the U.S. dollar there, which did not work. Then uh, um, we, we had our problems here as well with uh, the, the dollar getting to almost four reais, uh, only due to expectations that the U.S. Federal Reserve might raise the basic interest rates in the U.S. Uh, we don't have strong currencies right now in South America. Is it too ambitious to believe that we could have a common currency? Oh, I believe so. For now, it's completely, I would say, even nonsense. Because uh, when we talk about the current currency, uh, common currency, sorry, it's not only the fact that you can travel just like in the European Union. You travel from one country to the other and you're using uh, the same uh, money, paper to pay for stuff. Uh, it goes beyond because when countries decide to have a common currency, what we have in the EU is that these countries no longer have the power to establish their monetary policies. So they have the European Central Bank. And what we see, for example, in Brazil today is uh, how the central bank is going to establish the interest rate, the SELIC, so as to control inflation. Or on the other hand, Well, the activity economy is too weak, so we need to lower the interest rate so it gives the activity a boost. So we still use monetary policy as a way to uh, either control or influence or conduct the economy. And our economies are so different that it's hard to imagine how 
one monetary authority would be capable of dealing with so many different problems. Uh, for example, having to establish one common interest rate. So when you look at the European experience, what these countries had to do to become members, for example, is to have a very stable and low inflation. So they are all in the same level as if it was something like that. So when they become integrated, they are less exposed to this sort of uh, scenario that it's exactly the opposite of what we're seeing in Brazil and Argentina now that, for example, in 2015, our inflation wasn't at 10%. Mm -hmm. And now, last year, it came to under 3%. So it's like a very drastic uh, variation. Mm -hmm. And then when you look in Argentina after the crisis, Uh, their interest rate had to rise to 40% in a week. So it's very delicate. And this is not the scenario that a common currency project uh, demands for it to be implemented. And uh, one last question is, how much do you think that the future of Mercosur hangs on the balance with the trade agreement with the EU? Well, I think that this trade agreement, it can be the turning point, for example. We can see it as, well, for the past 27 years, we haven't done much, but after 20 years of negotiation, we have closed this very important deal with a very important partner, and this can actually change drastically the scenario for better. And, uh, for example, after you close such deal, it can be, a sign that other countries and other markets can be also interested. And when you have already met a lot of standards to become a partner of the EU, it may be easier for you uh, to become partner with uh, other major markets. So I guess it, it plays an important role. Of course, it's not that if Brazil and the Mercosur don't close this deal, it's the end of Mercosur. I don't think that's the case. But it can be a strong sign. It would be a game changer, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, Mario, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, but thank you very much for talking to us today. Well, my pleasure, Gustavo. Thanks for having me. I'd also like to thank our listeners. If you like what you heard, please take a look at our website. It's Brazilian.report. Every day we have new content about Brazil's politics, economics, and society. We also have exclusive newsletter services if you want to be brief on what's going on in Brazil before you start your day. Subscribe now to our free trial and enjoy all of our content for 14 days for free. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Brazilian Report. That's all for now. See you next week. Thank you very much. Soy el fuego que arde tu piel.